0: In February of 2016, which, wow, I think back, February 2016, that is pre-Trump America. We were having brunch all the time and wearing dazzling outfits and life was too good to us almost (laughs) in comparison to how it was a year later. Wow. What an epic year. Really transformative year in my life for sure. I definitely look back at it as a before and after kind of thing. Okay, so anyway, I digress. It's February of 2016, and Jezebel writer Anna Merlin published a piece called After Months of Reported Dysfunction, Nasty Gal Lays Off 19 Employees. And of course, this article will be shared in the show notes. You should definitely go give it a read. This piece was just one in a series that Anna had written over the last few years, really calling out the toxic environment at the company that was known for its hashtag girlboss founder, Sophia Amoroso. Like, Sophia was such a girl boss that she had literally written the best-selling book, Girlboss. In the past year and a half-ish leading up to that February 2016 piece about the layoffs, Information had been trickling out into the public sphere about things like pregnant women being fired for being pregnant, which is not only very unfeminist, but also illegal, among many other details, many other lawsuits that revealed the decidedly unfeminist culture of the brand. This, this is a bad look for the brand that is Girl Boss, Right? This February two thousand and sixteen article contains some quotes from a previous piece that has disappeared from the internet. I couldn't find it anywhere. But fortunately, these quotes still exist in this article. so let's let's read some of it, okay? A current employee told Jezebel this winter that the office environment had grown very tense, with CEO Sherry Watterson delivering screaming tirades almost daily. In one bizarre incident, the employee said Watterson spent almost a full day freaking out about Nasty Gal's downtown office being dirty and trying to clean the refrigerator. The employee called the environment emotionally abusive, adding, work is a constant fire drill based on Sherry's whims that week. Her expectation is that we should work seven days a week. There is never positive feedback, only lectures and insults. What's the opposite of being empowered? Marginalized? Everyone has developed stress-related illnesses from shingles to IBS to stress eczema. It's so ironic to see how much of the world has been drinking the hashtag girlboss Kool-Aid, she writes in an email. The actual environment at Nasty Gal couldn't be any more different from what Sophia portrays to the world. It feels weird to read those words aloud to you, what, seven, almost eight years later. Because I find myself instantly transported to my desk in the Nasty Gal offices. You know, there's my associate buyer, Natara, sitting on the other side of the divider for me working on most likely yet another reorder of the Champagne Taste Blazer or yet another vegan leather moto jacket. And my planner won in a series because the turnover was so high. She's probably on the end of the row, probably fretting about how we will ever get rid of three years worth of sweater inventory in three months. Oh, I still feel that pain and then my two best friends, Kim and Sherry, not to be confused with Sherry Waterson, spelled completely differently, they're somewhere at yet another meeting in one of the many rooms named after a movie. Seriously, if you haven't yet, you should go back, go check out the department and listen to our series of episodes about Girl Boss and kind of the rise and fall of that that movement. It's not really even a movement. It's a marketing ploy. Let's be real. Anyway, we talked about how, like, for example, the one room where we would get pulled into all the time and just berated was called Mean Girls. And not only has that ruined that movie for me, but it also, man, what a great name for that room. (laughs) Because so much meanness happened in there. Anyway. Meanwhile, here it is. Everyone's there. We're in this office full of people. It's open seating. I have a special, like, kind of slightly larger space because, you know, I'm like a senior buyer here. So, but I still have, like, absolutely no privacy, right? And here I am surreptitiously firing off an email to Anna Merlin of Jezebel telling her what it was like to work at Nasty Gal. Yeah, those quotes, that was me, those were my words. And during the months leading up to those layoffs in February, I had worked with Anna on a couple of different pieces about Nasty Gal, really connecting her with other frazzled, overworked, and ill coworkers. I was the one who tipped her off to the layoffs that day that that piece was written. Kim and I both ended up being laid off that day, and wow, we were we were relieved, almost giddy about it. Dustin, who was just my boyfriend back then, picked us up from the office and took us to a bar in downtown L.A. where we threw back whiskey cocktails and just felt so, so free, so relieved, so just like, ugh, because we would both felt so stuck there. Would this, this, my last day at Nasty Gal, be the end of my career in fast fashion? <laughs> no. The story just continues. And we're going to get into that today. (laughs) Welcome to episode one seventy seven of Close Horse part three of three, I promise it's just three, in my exploration of the evolution of fast fashion over the last 15 years. I'm your host, Amanda. Before we jump in today, there's a lot to talk about, but I wanted to call something out. I know I haven't shared any of the secondhand audio essays yet this month, and I am so sorry. It's just because these episodes have ended up being so long, but These essays will start popping up over the next few weeks. I have some great ones that y'all sent in, and I'm really excited to share them. I feel bad that they might not all be coming out during secondhand September, but the way I look at it is secondhand first is a big part of everything Clothes Horse, so they will never not be appropriate. All right, let's jump back into fast fashion, okay? This summer, as in the summer of 2023, I was driving with one of my coworkers, really someone I managed on my team at my last job. I was driving her back from a mall in San Antonio where we had spent the day re merchandising. It was our last project together because it was my second to last day at my job. My second to last day being her boss. She asked me, Was this your worst job? Because by now she knew, because she had witnessed the final episode that made me quit, by now she knew that I had been dealing with a wild amount of stress and verbal abuse and humiliation for the last year or so. I'd done a really good job of covering it up for a long time, but now everyone knew. That had to be the worst job, right? But it wasn't. My best job was mod cloth by far. No argument there at all. I had left that job, perhaps foolishly, perhaps not, because there had been several rounds of layoffs in the past few years, and I was scared of the future. Furthermore, a new CEO had come in, a guy named Matt Kness, who was from my previous employer, actually, and he brought that kind of rich white guys tell women what to do and yell at them energy to the office, which I do not like, and I do not want to be around. I just couldn't see how this was not going to go awry, because where he came from was everything that ModCloth wasn't, and I didn't want it to turn into that place, that place that I had come from too, and that I had left because I didn't like what was going on there. So I just had a feeling this wasn't going to be a good thing, him being the CEO. In fact... Another piece by Anna Merlin. Seriously, if somebody knows her personally, because I would feel weird reaching out to her at this point. It's been so far in the rear view that I was emailing with her. If you know her, will you please send her my way? Because I would love to have her as a guest on the podcast to talk about all of her work reporting on this for Jezebel. Anyway, so she wrote an article about a year later, not even a full year later, about Mod Cloth. And it called out some employee, other employees' experiences with Kness that did not surprise me at all. From this piece, it was Kness's decision to remove Plus from the website, one employee who recently left the company says. That's when we all really started to think he was not a great fit. A lot of us who'd been there for a really long time and were women who weren't a size two ourselves, who were part of the demographic we were speaking to, felt we felt it was a bad move and it was going to make shopping far more difficult. He also said we were going to stop showing as many plus size models because plus size is, quote, not aspirational. There was an audible gasp when he said that. Now, Kness denies saying that, but then here's, well, okay. How about this great Glassdoor review from that era? The current CEO has single-handedly destroyed this brand, its culture, and the morale of hundreds of employees. His conservative, misogynistic views are the opposite of what ModCloth used to stand for. The decision to eliminate Plus from the site, despite strong protests from employees who had been there for years and been part of the research on it, was the first big indicator of his ego problem. I have to say that... One of the many things that made me proud to work at ModCloth and made me excited to do that work was that we were really changing what it meant to sell clothes to more people by selling more sizes, and not just doing like that in that size range and this in that size range, but doing everything in a way that everyone could wear it. And that was really important to me because my previous employer would have never done anything like that, still hasn't done anything like that. And to hear that this was being chipped away at broke my heart. I'll say it. After I left, I heard a lot of really messed up stories about Kness from my former co-workers, one of whom came to join me at Nastigal a few months later. We're talking lots of yelling, humiliation, and really just creepiness, creepiness towards the female employees. That guy is now the CEO of GoodwillFinds.com. I'll let you decide how you feel about that, Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Okay, so ModCloth. Best job. I mean, talking like really nice people, good benefits, nice working environment, manageable workload. And you know what? I really liked the founders, Susan and Eric, as people. Like truly kind and thoughtful people. The kind of people you want running a company. My worst job by far came after Nasty Gal working for a small feminist brand and feminist in all the most ironic quotes, okay? I'll tell you more about that in a bit. The second worst was my last job. Not only did it destroy my self-esteem, I now have scars on my forearms from the self-harm I was doing as a coping mechanism. Yeah, I get to be reminded every day of why it is important to catch those work red flags before you take the job. And always quit when it gets that bad, no matter what that means for you financially. Because being broke and alive is infinitely better than being dead or super sick all the time. This is a life lesson that it took me this long to figure out, okay? A lot of these jobs I'm talking about, with the exception of ModCloth, kind of sucked or were really abusive. But how was I gonna pay my bills if I left? This is... This is what kept me there, you know? So Nasty Gal actually kind of lands in the middle of badness for jobs, which says more about what it means to work in fashion than it does for Nasty Gal being a nice place to work because it was not a nice place to work. But my coworkers, okay, well, not all my coworkers, but many of them were some of the most talented people I have ever met. And I am friends with many of them today. I am so honored that I got to work alongside them, even if it was at this wildly dysfunctional company. I was wooed from ModCloth to Nasty Gal, literally just a few blocks away by several factors. One, the previously mentioned sense of anxiety about layoffs and the new CEO. Two, the fact that my best friend Sherry, not to be confused with Sherry Watterson, had just taken a job there. And three, and this was probably the biggest one of all, the entire cult of girl boss. I had spent my career realizing that there would always be a low ceiling of what I could accomplish simply because of my gender. Despite an industry being fueled by women in every regard, think about it, they're making the clothes, they're designing and developing the clothes, they're managing a lot of the finances around the clothes, and then they're out there as customers buying the damn clothes, This is an industry that is fueled by women, right? Nonetheless, the industry was always run by white dudes, rich white dudes, older rich white dudes. Rich, older white dudes who didn't have a lot of respect for women. And so women rarely got to reach the top. And the idea that maybe Nasty Gal was different was very appealing to me. And in fact, it was my realization that hashtag girlboss was just another scam that made that job super devastating and so disappointing. The company was indeed run by a woman, not Sophia Amoroso, which everyone thought. By then she had stepped down and there was a new CEO, Sherry Waterson. She had previously been fired from Lululemon for the see-through pants debacle. Before that, She had run a new Gymboree brand into bankruptcy. She's kind of, unfortunately, the definition of failing upwards. She 100% had no idea what she was doing at Nasty Gal. She didn't understand the millennial customer, right? She didn't understand. I mean, God, one time we were in a meeting and she said, you're not gonna believe this, but people buy stuff using their phones. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, we all know that. But you didn't and you're in charge of this? Yeah, her not being the right person for that role and then bringing in a lot of her friends from other jobs who also were not the right people for the role, that was the biggest reason the company went under. I mean, there were all kinds of other things. Too much inventory, too much money spent on customer acquisition, poor management of money in the first place, opening a wildly expensive store out in the Santa Monica Promenade that never performed just a few reasons there. I could seriously talk about this for hours and maybe maybe that's a bonus episode if you all think that would be interesting to hear about. Anyway, every other executive there, all friends that Sherry had brought in was your t- they were all your typical white dude, and these particular white dudes were hella toxic, super cruel, so condescending and occasionally very harassing in a creepy way. Yeah. You know, I took this job with really high expectations. It didn't help that the recruiter promised me that Nasty Gal was an amazing, fun place to work, and the business was so on fire that everyone always got huge bonuses. The interview process had been harrowing. First, I'd been brought in for an interview about six months prior, then completely ghosted. That should have been a red flag. But it wasn't. <laughs> oh, experience teaches us so much, Right. Then after my best friend Sherry was hired, she was like, "Um, why haven't you hired my friend Amanda? She literally works down the street and she's like really good at what she does. So they brought me back in for another series of interviews. Apparently they, I don't know, I think they just forgotten about me before, honestly. They made me do two different projects and these projects, these fashion projects, it's not just like you sit down for like an hour and do something on Pinterest. It's usually like a good eight to 16 hours of work. Putting it all together, you gotta think it through, you gotta create the presentation, all that stuff. So a lot, a lot of work right there. They made me do two because Sherry Watterson wasn't sure if I had good taste because of the previous places I had worked. Never mind, because that's kind of mm, pretty interesting, because both of those businesses were much bigger and more successful than Nasty Gal. But this kind of planted a seed in my brain that I was lucky to be here at Nasty Gal. So I didn't push back on the salary they offered me and I felt like a major imposter for the next six months or so until I was more settled in. And, you know, I hadn't felt that way at Mod Cloth at all. Like, I was glad to be there, but I was just never like, oh, I'm so lucky that they picked me. Like, oh, I hope someday I can, you know, deserve this. Though I felt like, yeah, this is a great fit, right? And it's mutually beneficial for everyone that I'm here, right? It's good for me, it's good for them. Didn't feel that way at Nasty Gal for a long time. So on my first day, I sit down at my desk and examine the mountain of sales reports. And I'm immediately like, holy shit, this business is, get ready for some cursing here, fucked. Categories who had years and years worth of inventory on hand. That's what I was seeing. It was scary. The sales were down triple digits, meaning they were like half or a third of the previous year, but there were three or four or five times the amount of inventory. That's a bad thing. Like a healthy business has about three months of inventory on hand, meaning enough to fuel three years of sales. Maybe six months if it's a slow category, but three plus years on sales that are down to half or a third of the previous year, that's a disaster. Soon it became apparent that Sherry and I, and later Kim, had been hired to try to fix this situation but I didn't even know where to begin. We, we tried. We tried really hard. But we couldn't fix it because the executives picked a new strategy every week. They never allowed any of these strategies to play out and they expected us to work all day, every day, chasing whatever their whim of the week was. Sherry Watterson herself said, I like to send out emails on the weekend to see who responds because anyone who doesn't, doesn't care about their jobs. I mean, so that's where you find yourself like, oh, I'm camping. I gotta go find a road where there's some reception so I can see if Sherry Watterson emailed me today. You know, it puts the pressure on that you, you have to pretend that you care that much, but you just need some time off, right? Oh, the strategy changes. First, they were chasing more expensive product, When I started, I had to cancel all of that expensive product, and then everyone was heading off to the mart for cheaper product. Then it was like, let's try activewear, or Sophia is getting married, so let's make a wedding collection. Let's do more t-shirts. Now more dresses. Nothing ever stayed the same for very long, and I could tell you wild stories all day. Sherry and I used to joke about writing a sitcom about working there because it was so ridiculous. By late fall, early winter, when I'd reached out to Anna Merlin saying, hey, I'm a senior buyer at Nastigal, and I want to talk to you about how it really is here, I was fully pissed off and epically disappointed and low-key trapped. Because working fashion in LA, you don't have a lot of great options. In fact, the options are so bad that they're legendary, and just about everyone you encounter has worked for one of these companies and has a bad story. So... There's Forever 21, notoriously horrible company to work for that expected a minimum of 12 hours of work each day. Would have you take a red eye flight to New York, get in at eight, and immediately start working for 12 hours? Uh, rang a bell for when you could eat lunch, and then rang it when you had to stop, listen to your phone calls, read your emails. It was rough. Then there was. BCBG, which was also horrible. I've had a few friends go through that one. Guess, which was also terrible, but with sexual harassment added into the mix. There was Revolve, but I had heard weird stories. And Reformation was coming up on the scene, but so far they just seemed notorious for having candidates do merchandising and product projects and then ghosting them. There were just no good options. And you know what? I was trapped there. I knew what it was really like, and it really sucked that everyone on the outside thought that Nasty Gal was this super cool, super feminist, fun place to work, because it just wasn't. It was all a lie. Lots of diet culture, fat shaming. I'll never forget learning that Sophia and Sherry had decided that from now on we wouldn't make clothes that accommodated anyone over a C cup because it just wasn't aesthetically pleasing. That was cool. Um, or when Sophia sent out a diet program email to everyone. Yeah, lots of cool stuff like that. When Sherry Watterson shamed anyone who wore a size medium. <laughs> that was me. I wore a size medium, so that felt great. It was, just, it was just terrible, right? There were creepy white dudes in leadership, just like many other companies. So how was that better? There was super high turnover. Someone left, at least one person left every week. There was always a cupcake and champagne farewell party, right? And, ugh, gross after a while. I can't even think of consuming the two at one time. I've been, I've had too many. (laughs) And there was just low pay. We were paying the cool tax, you know, getting paid less to work somewhere cool. But man, were we sure we're working all the freaking time? It was a disappointment. That's an understatement. I really wanted to believe that it, it could work and it, and it didn't. So Kim and I were laid off. I knew it was coming because we had been talking in November before the holidays in our leadership meetings about how the company was running out of money. And Kim and I were let go because we were some of the most expensive employees. It was basically like cut us so other people can still have their jobs. I feel okay about that. That's the responsibility of being a leader, right? They also, that day, they caught a lot of creative roles and the production team. A few months later, the designers were let go. And then the bankruptcy happened. If you listen to the last episode, you know that Nasty Gal was eventually bought by Boohoo. And the transition was very confusing for customers. One night at midnight, the website went dark. And then the next morning, it looked slightly different, barely. And the product on the site looked similar, it was now magically half the price or less. There was no public announcement on the website or really anywhere that said, "Hey, by the way, Nasty Gal is sold. It's a new company now. The product is different. It comes from a different place. It's you know a whole a whole new situation." No customers didn't know that, so they were perplexed. Like, why was the product suddenly shipping from the UK and taking a really long time to get there? It wasn't Nasty Gal based in LA? And why was the quality so much worse? No one ever addressed that. The last days of Nasty Gal are interesting to me because they tie back in to ModCloth and you probably wouldn't see that coming. And it's interesting to me to think of my two employers back to back who are very, very different being part of the narrative, like intersecting again. So in the last days of Nasty Gal, you know, they declared bankruptcy, they weren't really letting go more people at this point because there was hope that Walmart was going to buy Nasty Gal. They had been out there, Walmart, buying up a lot of different online retailers like Jet.com, for example, in hopes of, you know, diversifying their portfolio. For Walmart, this was a way to increase sales year over year because that's how the business is, where right? You got to have more sales every year to pay those shareholders, well, Walmart had kind of hit a ceiling there. There were only so many Walmarts that could be opened. And so they were starting to buy other companies like Jet.com and basically saying like, you can be self-inclusive. You run yourself. We just own you, right? And we help you with logistics maybe to make you more profitable, make your, all of your processes run more smoothly. But you know, you still dictate what happens here. So Walmart had been in talks with Nasty Gal to buy them. And it seemed like it maybe it was gonna happen. It seemed not even maybe like likely that it was gonna happen. And this was gonna be a big relief to everyone who was left there. I wasn't there anymore, but my best friend Sherry was. And she was optimistic about it because it meant that nobody would have to be laid off. They could still continue working on all the things that they were working on, but the company would be saved and there would be more certainty and real talk Our company, well, Nasty Gal, no longer my company, but when I was there, uh, had a lot of issues with fulfillment and warehouse and systems and all this stuff that were really one of the reasons it was losing a lot of money. This would have fixed all of that, right? Well, at this point, we're getting down to the end of the uh, time period for someone to place a bid to acquire Nasty Gal in bankruptcy court. And so far, only one one company has made a bid, and that's Boohoo. Nobody wants Boohoo to win this because if Boohoo buys Nasty Gal, they're just gonna buy the intellectual property, which means the branding, the email list, all the marketing assets, all of that. But they're gonna let go of everyone because they have their own buying and designers and all of that stuff back in the UK, you know, because they're Boohoo, right? And so they're just gonna fill the site with product and keep running, but they don't need any of us. So everyone was going to lose their job. So things are getting stressed. It's down to the last couple of days. Then it's the last day. And the executives at Nasty Gal are like, hey, when are you going to make your bid? Walmart. <laughs> like, what? What's going on? And Walmart's kind of ghosting them. And it's interesting because Walmart had done a lot of due diligence at this point, sending people out, you know, to meet with the executives and tour the office and learn more about the business and look at the books. And it just seemed like a certainty. But midnight passes. The bidding period is over. And no one has heard from Walmart. Now Boohoo is taking over. Everyone's going to lose their job. And at the same time, do you know what's announced? That ModCloth has been sold to Walmart. Walmart has acquired it. All of these people I know at both companies didn't know that the other company was a part of this process, I guess. And it was shocking. It was shocking for my friends who are still at ModCloth because like, holy shit, now Walmart is our boss. And for everyone at it was like, oh, we're losing our jobs. And that's what happened, right? So everyone was let go, kind of like, here's a few being let go then a few more then a few more my friend sherry was actually one of the final people working there like really like selling off the furniture and the vintage and the leftover inventory and ch- doing some of the accounting and just everything and then it was and then it was gone and you know uh the night the night that boohoo took it over it was all over sophia cleared out her office in the middle of the night no one saw her she never gave a speech It was hurtful to a lot of people who were there, especially people who had been there for years and years and had really looked to Sophia as a leader. And I also understand, like, what a hard thing to build something only to have it basically be destroyed, right? It's really hard. I'm sympathetic for her, too. You know, I think she picked the wrong person to take over Nasty Gal from her, you know, Sherry Watterson, and there was no turning around from that. And I also think that Sherry Watterson probably talked a good game because she was, I don't know why I'm speaking about her in past tense. She runs Athleta now. Uh, she is very, very charismatic and could talk you into just about anything too. So yeah, that was, that was the end of Nasty Gal. And that's how ModCloth was bought by Walmart. A purchase heavily brokered, heavily facilitated by Matt Kness, who then went on to do other things. Meanwhile, all this is going on, and I spent a few months looking for a job. The options felt very dismal, as I mentioned. I was definitely very anxious, and I was definitely worrying about money. I had received a couple months of severance and unemployment, but that only goes so far in L.A., I kept myself busy. I went to museums. I volunteered more at the kitten shelter. I went to the beach, which is my favorite place. I went hiking with Sherry on the weekends. I learned how to cook Korean food. I just worried. I worried a lot. But other good things happened, too. Dustin took me out for a drive to Malibu, and then he got down on one knee and proposed marriage. He knew I wasn't a diamond kind of person, so he had a ring custom made by a jewelry designer that had a huge raw emerald on it. Doesn't look like any engagement ring I've ever seen, and it it felt right, <laughs> you know? And this thing, marriage, was something I never saw coming for me. After losing Dylan's father and, and navigating a few very difficult relationships over the years, all while also, I don't know dealing with my grief that never went away. After all that, I just didn't care about dating and marriage. When I met, when I met Dustin, I said to him, Hey, I feel like you're trying to turn me into a girlfriend. And I just want to tell you, it's going to take a lot of convincing because one thing I have learned is that nothing will make me more unhappy than a bad relationship and it will rob me of all the other joy and satisfaction from every other aspect of my life. And I don't want or need that. And I don't need a boyfriend, you know? And he said, okay. He nodded his head. I can picture him hearing that right now. And it was true. I just wanted to live a good life. I wanted to be happy and do things that I liked, spend time with people I loved. But doesn't stuck around and... He was different than anyone else I'd ever ever been involved with. But even when I said yes to Dustin that day on the beach, I didn't know how important and magical our partnership would be. And it, at the risk of sounding cheesy, every day I am reminded multiple times of how special he is and how special what we have is. And even this podcast, it wouldn't exist if Dustin wasn't such an incredible partner, I think all of you know that by now. But I just, I just need to remind everyone, including myself, by saying it out loud. But getting engaged, this kind of put more pressure on me to find a job because Dustin wasn't doing very well financially. There were a couple times I had to help him with rent because at that point his income relied on doing sound at live shows and touring with bands, either as a sound guy or playing playing on stage with them and it was unpredictable. It wasn't consistent. He didn't want to go on tour for long periods of time anymore because he wanted to build a life with me. So I had to get a job. I mean, I wanted to get a job anyway. I love working. That's the reality of me. Ultimately, I knew that we couldn't stay in L.A., which to this day breaks my heart because I love L.A., It is one of the most magical places I have ever been. It's one of my favorite cities in the world. I would move back there in a heartbeat if I could afford it. And I wasn't afraid of climate change. Like, I wish I could just be transported there right now. I love LA, but I knew we were going to have to leave because there were not going to be any jobs there for me that I wanted. They were just going to be more of the same shit. So I ended up accepting a job. This job being the worst job on the worst-to-best job list. Uh, And I ended up working for a small brand in the Pacific Northwest as director of merchandising. And what happened there, actually, with hindsight, was indicative of the next phase of fast fashion. And how it was kind of starting to fall apart. (laughs) Let's take a moment to thank some of the incredible small businesses who keep Clothes Horse going via their generous Patreon support. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed, vintage, or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Vino Vintage, based just outside of L.A. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist, an upcycler, and a fashion designer. But Gabriella Antonis is also a feminist micro business with radical ideals. She's the one woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the world needs. If you find yourself in New Orleans, Louisiana, you may buy her ready to wear upcycle garments in person at the store Slow Down at 2855 Magazine Street. Slow Down Nola only sells vintage and slow fashion from local designers, and Gabriella's garments are guaranteed to be in stock in person, but they also have a website, so you may support this woman-owned and run business from wherever you are. If you're interested in Gabriella making a -a one-of-a-kind garment for you, DM her on Instagram at SlowFashionGabriella to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram at SlowFashionGabriella. That's Gabriella with one L. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at Dylanpage Life and Style. Salt Hats: purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand blocked, sewn and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. In addition to clothing, the shop also features a large selection of vintage vinyl and old school video games. Find them on Instagram at High Energy Vintage, online at highenergyvintage.com, and at markets in and around Boston. Vagavan Vintage DTLV is a vintage clothing accessories and decor reselling business based in downtown Las Vegas, Nevada. Not only do we sell in Las Vegas, but we're also located throughout resale markets in San Francisco, as well as at a curated boutique called Lux and Ivy located in Indianapolis, Indiana. Jessica, the founder and owner of Vagabond Vintage DTLV, recently opened the first IRL location located in the Arts District of downtown Las Vegas on August 5th. The shop has a strong emphasis on 60s and 70s garments, single-stitch tees, and dreamy loungewear. Follow them on instagram at vagabond vintage Dtlv and keep an eye out for their website coming fall of 2022 by two thousand and fifteen or so fast fashion is kind of running out of ways to compete I mean think about it you know brands had hit the bottom in terms of pricing years earlier. And it was kind of hard to imagine how anything could be faster. At this point, Zara is turning clothes around in six weeks, and there was no way to get any faster than that. Well, spoiler, there would be, but that was years off, right? <laughs> okay, so knowing that you can that you can no longer stand out for being the cheapest, because everyone is, and you can't stand out for being the trendiest or fastest, because everybody's doing that too... How does a brand stand out when everyone is kind of doing the same thing? Well, some analysts said it was important to really find your niche, narrow your focus onto one customer. And that was what my next employer after Nasty Gal did, focusing on sort of a tomboy, unisex aesthetic. But the thing about that is if you narrow your focus too much, you can't grow very much, right? There's a ceiling on how many customers you can reach. And unfortunately, Investors want just the opposite. They want unlimited growth and profitability. In fact, investors in Nasty Gal and ModCloth had been pushing for that. And guess what? Those brands failed. ModCloth was going to go under if it hadn't been acquired by Walmart. And Nasty Gal, well, it was gone and rebranded or repackaged or not even. The packaging was the same. It was the filling that was different, I guess. I began to see around this time more and more industry articles and then eventually panel conversations at various trade shows about something interesting, something that would really inform a lot of the ways things were sold to us until now, basically. This idea that millennials and then later Gen Z only wanted to support brands that had a mission or a cause associated with them which was kind of ironic, to be fair. I look back and I'm like, oh, y'all are giving, you know, y'all are writing articles, think pieces, doing presentations about this. But Forever 21 and Zara and H&M and Wet Seal and so many other fast fashion brands were making a killing off of millennials. And they didn't seem to have any mission at all, except for selling you a lot of clothes but okay, this sounds like a good idea. Tell me more. <laughs> like, I, I, you might be onto something, but I think this, oh, millennials are different. Millennials are disruptors kind of thinking was a little premature or a little off-base, just based, depending on how you look at it, based on what we had seen, which was the rise of the fast fashion model becoming completely normalized, primarily, at least in the beginning, fueled by millennials money right well smart brands heard the message that you got to get a cause you got to get a mission you got to stand for something you got to stand for something and so the smart brands started to lean into it i mean even girlboss was a cause within itself, right? And periodically at Nasty Gal, we would sell something with a give back component, maybe on International Women's Day, which suddenly became like a new retail holiday. Earth Day would be next. Um, and so for example, we'd sell something special, like a special t-shirt or group of t-shirts on International Women's Day that would fund grants for small women-owned businesses, something like that. Wait, I'm sorry. Let's get it Right. Hashtag girl boss owned businesses. (laughs) So that's what we were doing and it it worked, right? And it's hard to imagine Nasty Gal having any success at that point if girl boss hadn't been a component of it because otherwise people probably would have gotten bored, you know? Other people were out there trying to copy what we did aesthetically and from a product mix perspective and even the design aesthetic of our website. There was this weird morning someone was like, at work was like, can I just show you something really weird? And she pulled it up on her computer. And I was like, wait, that's the Nasty Gal website. And she was like, no, it's not. Read more closely. And it was something else. I don't remember what it was called, but it was our font, our exact website design. The product looked the same. And it was some fast fashion retailer in Australia that had just copied everything else about us. And it was the girl bossness of it all that allowed us to keep some of our footing, right? I mean, obviously it fell apart eventually, but not because customers weren't interested in buying into Girlboss. Then we see brands like Everlane and and Reformation really pushing this like sustainability angle. Reformation was trying to prove that, quote, fast fashion, sustainability, and local manufacturing can coexist. Well, I have a spoiler for all of you. It turns out that fast fashion and sustainability can never coexist, but at the time, people fell for it. I fell for it. I didn't know then what I know now. I will tell you at Nasty Girl, we were nervous about Reformation. We were like, oh man, they're doing everything better than us and they can charge more money and they stole our copywriter and what are we going to do about Reformation? Oh, I know. We'll just try to copy what they saw, but we won't even try to speak to this sustainability thing because we don't even know what it means, right? (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, then there were companies like Tom's and Warby Parker, which like seriously for a few years there, you couldn't sit in a meeting anywhere and not hear about Tom's and Warby Parker and this one-for-one, you know, buy one, donate one kind of model. Tom's was changing it all. They were changing what it means to be a retailer and a brand and a manufacturer, and so was Warby Parker, and they were opening stores everywhere. And the investment world was just like, how can you be Tom's? How can you work the Warby Parker model into your business? I mean, Skechers was like, hey, hold on, we got it. We're just going to completely copy the Tom's concept in every single way, down to calling the line, not Tom's, but Bob's, disturbingly close, That really happened. It still happens. And Dustin and I joke about Bob's way too much. We maybe joke about Skechers way too much. But everyone was like, how do I get involved? If you were going out asking for money, investment money, this is what people wanted to hear. What's the thing you're doing for the world? And from feminism to environmentalism, every brand was looking for an angle, except for the ones like Urban Outfitters and Anthropology who waited a long time to try that out but eventually did this is when we start to see earth day collections and instagram posts from big brands about all of these like you know international women's day earth day kind of holidays turning them into a reason to shop and like i said you couldn't ask for investment without having an angle like this in fact that one week period in which Nasty Gal was acquired by Boohoo and ModCloth was acquired by Walmart really changed what it meant and how hard it was to get investment for your business from, you know, especially from venture capitalists. Uh, it, it, really, it really made it hard. In fact, the next job I had, which I'm going to tell you more about in a few, um, at that point, We were coming down the home stretch of so many meetings, trying to get additional investment, another round of funding. And it seemed like we had finally solidified it. Everything was gonna be signed, sealed, done in early January, um, which was gonna be great because all of us were finally gonna get raises. We'd all taken very low, low pay for our jobs in hopes that like when this money came through, it was gonna be better. And the company was running out of runway. Like we were going to have to go under if we didn't get this money in one way or another. And it was it was done. After months of due diligence and meetings and decks and pitches and all that stuff, we were finally going to be done. And then in that same week, we have Nasty Gal being bought by Boohoo, ModCloth being bought by Walmart. It becoming more apparent to the world that both of those concepts were flawed financially um and maybe not a good investment suddenly all uh, our entire round of funding fell apart and we had to start over because every investor was spooked they did not they did not want to invest in a company that sold clothing no retail right so we just start over and you know what we leaned more heavily into this we're we're all about feminism, we're all about social justice. That's what makes us different. We empower women, all this stuff, right? And that allowed us to get the money that we needed. Less than we were originally supposed to, but enough, enough to keep going. But like I said, it took months and more more meetings, more questions, more due diligence, more pitches, more really awkward conversations with people I have nothing in common with. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, Dustin and I moved to Portland for this new job. Right out of the gate, I'm gonna tell you, I was stressed. I was like, I don't know if this is gonna work. But I was also like excited because here was this brand whose values matched mine. It wasn't gonna be a scam like Nasty Gal. You know, we were doing something really cool and unique and this was the future. And there were ethics and values and all these things that mattered to me. And to be fair, I, over the years that I worked there, I grew that business a ton by creating a private label line of clothing that made the business bigger and more profitable and totally changed what that business was and made it even more special to its customer. I'm good at what I do. For years before I joined the company, the brand had been primarily selling men's clothing in smaller sizes to women because that aesthetic was not available in women's sizes, right? Right? That was my big mission, to change that. And I was really excited about it, to prove that there was this whole other way that you could dress. You could do this different thing and it would be just as awesome. Right around the time I joined the team, the business had struck gold, just literally a couple of weeks earlier, with a collection of feminist tees. And it was sort of an accident, but it could not have been more perfect timing. Because this is when Donald Trump was running for president and all of the Access Hollywood stuff was released. Feminism was becoming a bigger mainstream conversation as the election approached. And this was a great time to sell feminist tees, because how else would anyone out there know what you stand for if your t-shirt didn't tell them, right? When Trump won the election and the women's march took place, it was like freaking Christmas for anyone who had feminist gear to sell. I was working around the clock to keep the business in stock, even literally ordering feminist tees while wearing my wedding dress on my wedding day because this job had no boundaries and I was committed to doing the best job ever. Now, Here's the thing. And you probably are already thinking this because this is a different time than 2016, right? Trading in feminism or any other issue of social justice is murky at best. Feels weird to make money off of social justice, and it felt even weirder to see everyone doing this, right? Forever 21, Zara, H and M, Free People, everyone was churning out feminist teas and accessories. Most customers didn't care and just kept buying it all. They just wanted it. And I get this like collective feeling that we all had then of just like, oh, what can I do to make myself feel better, right? How can I feel like I have some control in a world in which I currently have no control and I'm rapidly losing my faith and the people around me, right? I understand the drive for this stuff so well because I was feeling the same way. In fact, I was happy to work on buying and making more of this product to sell because it helped me feel like I'm doing something. I'm not as helpless as I might feel when I'm trying to fall asleep at night, right? And thinking about what is going on in this country and this world. (sighs) Oh my gosh, all the stuff we worked on hats, tees, pins, patches, magnets, wall art, desk plaques, all of it, and anything. People would buy it, anything they could get their hands on. But at the same time, more and more voices were emerging to say, hey, it's not okay to profit from human rights. And so this is when we see cause marketing becoming a big thing. Cause marketing is that whole like, a portion of sales from this collection or item will be donated to such and such charity. And it's been going on in a smaller way since the 80s when it was sort of created, invented by American Express as part of a fundraiser to repair and restore the Statue of Liberty. And here and there, retailers would use it, but not that often. But in 2016, this really starts to turn on because it is an easy way to get your customer to buy something, even if they're not in the mood to buy something because they're depressed about the state of the world. At this point in 2016, most retailers are giving the money to Planned Parenthood. But that changes into other organizations as time progresses, like people need to come up with new ideas. We are constantly brainstorming. Okay, well, it's it's Giving Tuesday. What if 10% of our sales go to people protesting the pipeline. You know like that kind of thing. Like we were constantly like what can we what can we do next? Here's the thing about a portion of the proceeds or 1% of every sale or whatever it is it can be highly profitable because just like covering all the air freight or accounting for selling stuff on sale Because just like covering all the air freight that these brands have been using for years or accounting for selling so much stuff on sale or all the other tricks in the fast fashion world, all of those things, if you plan for them upfront, they can be highly profitable because you cut the cost to accommodate those expenses, those changes in the selling price. It's the same thing with this kind of give back model. You got to make up that 1% or 10%. You just cut corners. You squeeze factories. You pay workers less. Honestly, at the feminist brand, it never stopped frustrating me that we were giving 1% of our sales to Planned Parenthood while our employer didn't provide health insurance for any of us. That drove me to distraction and made me so depressed because... I would go to trade shows and people would be like, oh my God, I can't believe you work for that brand. Like that brand is my hero, like that kind of thing. And I'd be like, wow, I'm having such a hard time at work. You know, I can't even afford to see the doctor. This is this is bad. I had to get an x-ray and now I'm like gonna have to like not buy groceries this month. It was pretty bad. It was bad. But here's the thing about those 1% givebacks, the 10%, whatever it is that the retailer is promising you. None of those donations are ever really that big. 1% of proceeds often means 1% of profits. 10% of proceeds is 10% of profits. So we're talking a few cents per unit sold. It's not 10% of sales or 1% of sales, right? There's fine print. If something is $40 and of that is going to a charity. Okay, well, that's $4. But guess what? That's not what they're saying. They're saying 10% of profits, which is probably like, mm, I don't know, 32 cents on a good day. And the other thing is that in any of these companies that are a little bit larger, that have an accounting department, that have to do reconciliations and all this other stuff, the donations are sent months or even a year after that campaign is over because it takes that long to get to the point where you can say, this is how much money we can donate. By 2018 or so, cause marketing was actually hitting a wall because it was so oversaturated. There were a couple of good years there. There would be some time during the pandemic where it would make a slight comeback, but that was the peak of it. And it was just because, you know, like every other fast fashion trick of the last decade, it was overplayed. If everyone is selling something as a charitable give back, it doesn't feel special anymore. And by then, even Tom's, Tom's the hero of that several year period, had been acquired by a venture capital firm. So it no longer felt as special either. In fact, I had kind of forgotten about Tom's until we saw a store in Mexico City. And I was like, wow, that's so weird. We had a long, very judgy conversation about Tom's as we walked by. So at this point, we see fast fashion getting a little desperado because they are running out of ideas. They have tried it all. There's a lot more talk of sustainability, like that's the next thing. It's at every trade show I go to. There are whole panel conversations about that and booths popping up and brochures and brands promising this, manufacturers promising it. I mean, H&M had launched its first conscious collection in 2010, and it was picking up momentum in a Big way. Zara was following suit and more and more brands were jumping in with special so called sustainable collections. And greenwashing picks up major momentum. Now, remember, it's not sustainable if the workers making the stuff aren't being paid a living wage, but no one was asking about that because people didn't know about that. And so this greenwashing was pretty successful for a few years there. And I would argue it still works. There were a lot of other ideas swirling out there, especially around rental and resale. Because fast fashion brands were like, okay, how can we continue to grow sales when it seems like maybe, just maybe, people are finally hitting their threshold of how many new clothes they can buy every year? Not that they're maybe recognizing the overconsumption of it all, but they're sort of like, that's all the money I have. That's all the space I have. It was getting harder and harder to convince people to buy things they didn't need. So I left the feminist brand in mid-2018. I was burned out. I was underpaid. I was disenchanted by yet another fake feminist company. And honestly, I'm not even sure if I'm ready to talk about how much that job messed me up because it was just that bad. I internalized it for a long time while I was there. Until I finally broke down in the car one day with Justin, just started crying. I just felt, I felt trapped again because our quality of life and Dylan's future depended on my job, and if we were middle class, it was just barely. Everything felt so tenuous, and all the responsibility was on my shoulders. To make matters worse. Dylan had been dealing with some major mental health issues, and there had been a lot of hospitalizations and other things around that that nearly bankrupted us, because the insurance we got through the ACA barely covered anything, while costing way more than any employer-backed plan ever would have. That's how I ended up working at my last job before the pandemic, working for a new rental platform. At this point, everyone was talking about rental and secondhand as the next big thing, and... Both of these ideas combined these like get-rich-quick fantasies with greenwashing, which at that point was like a magical, beguiling recipe. Rent the Runway was filling investors' imaginations with dollar signs, and even though the company had never been profitable, <laughs> ThreadUp was hyping up secondhand as the future, despite, well, never being profitable. And then there was all this drama with Urban Outfitters and La Toad, basically, And I'll share an article in the show notes uh, that you can read more about it. But Latote had approached URBN, uh, you know, Urban Outfitters, to buy them. And the company had shown major interest. Um, They went through a long due diligence process of, like, going out to San Francisco where Latote was headquartered and seeing how their systems worked, like, from a technological perspective, but also from a logistics perspective, you know, visiting the warehouse, seeing how it all worked, Um. And then came back and kind of ghosted Latote and started their own rental company, and that's still in court. Actually, um, both have been trying to end it, but to no avail. It'll be interesting to see how that works out. But yeah, everybody was like, "I got to get in on these ideas," and yet they're not profitable ideas, and they're not—they're ideas that are so huge, rental and secondhand that. It's really hard to do unless you have a lot of money and none of these, none of these companies are are profitable yet, even now in 2023. Well, ultimately by early 2020, brands were just like, what next? Because I can't afford to get in on rental or secondhand. Like, what can I do? And it's because 12 years into the fast fashion era, things were happening that made it really hard to make fast fashion a profitable business, or at least as profitable as it had been in the early days, because remember, no shareholder is ever going to be happy with profits remaining level. They need to increase every year, right? Sales need to increase every year. There needs to be this constant growth. And all these brands were like, I don't know. Not only are we seeing a lot of our buddies out there, our peers going bankrupt or pulling back, I don't know how we sell more stuff and make more money off of it. And there were a few things here that were just really affecting that, right? One was that creating and housing so much inventory was a financial liability. By 2020, the fashion industry was making 45 billion garments every year that would never be sold or worn. This is really normal. Reading that number, it scandalizes me. Once again, that's 45 billion with a B. But as someone who's worked on the inside, I'm like, yeah. Yeah, it makes sense to me. Actually, it all adds up. This overproduction, this excess unsold inventory, it stems from multiple issues. One is just straight up buying into the wrong stuff. And when you have to buy every trend that appears on your desk, you buy a lot of things that don't work. Next, and this is the big one, are delusional sales plans that are not achievable. Basically, the higher your sales plan, the more inventory you need to hit that sales plan. If you miss the sales plan, which is usually what happens, you're left with a lot of unsold stuff. Now you would ask, why would retailers come up with a sales plan that is unachievable? Because it looks good. It looks good in the, in the reporting, right? It looks really good for investors. It looks really good for shareholders. It looks good for CEOs and executives and their bonuses. Fortunately, it ends up costing a lot of money on the back end when suddenly you have all this stuff you can't get rid of. Furthermore, massive quality or fit issues became more and more the norm in the fast fashion era because you don't have time to get it right. This stuff is like unsellable, right? What do you do with it? You have to pay for it. You didn't catch the mistake. Then as fast fashion continued to copy more and more artists and other brands, which they had to do because they needed new ideas all the time and didn't want to spend the money, to pay people to create those ideas. But every time they get busted for stealing an idea, then they have to pull that product, they can't sell that. Where does that go? And then lastly, uh, if you wanna get the lowest prices in order to get the highest profit, which you need to when you're selling most stuff on sale, remember that from our previous episodes, well, then you buy more so you can get that lower pricing. In fashion, this is how it works. The more units you buy, the lower the price. It's kind of like shopping in bulk, right? And so oftentimes you will push that order up beyond what you think you could sell just so you can get that lower price and cross your fingers that you do sell it. Well, that adds up and suddenly you have a lot of stuff and getting rid of that inventory that also costs the company money to pay for, to have made, and also getting rid of it costs money. And so that's just chipping away at the profitability of these fast fashion brands. But another big one here is that returns were killing the industry. By 2020, it is standard. You cannot compete with other brands if you do not offer free returns, which means you send the label to the customers and they slap it on and they don't pay to ship it back and they get their money back as fast as possible because that's another area of competition. You gotta refund the money fast. So you're paying to ship the stuff back. You're paying someone to sort it all, put it away, all of those things, It's so expensive. Reverse logistics, that's what it's called, is reverse logistics are more expensive than shipping it out to you and getting it to you in the first place. And it's quite a burden for retailers, especially with 30% or more of units bought from fast fashion retailers being returned every year this was so expensive that more and more retailers were saying, you know what, go ahead and keep it. We'll give you a refund. Because that was cheaper than bringing it back and trying to sell it. Basically just writing off the cost of that unit was cheaper. Returns of online fashion orders, even now in 2023, usually rack up $25 billion in processing costs for retailers every year. That's according to CoreSite Research. That's not even counting the cost of the product itself. That's the cost of those reverse logistics. How do you deal with that? How do you become a mass? How do you maintain growth and profitability year after year after year when you're spending so much money on returns? But here's the thing. Retailers can't stop offering free returns because then their sales are gonna go down and that's another thing they need to deliver got to remain competitive. You have to do what everybody else is doing. So free returns, just keep going. It was getting harder and harder to be a growing fast fashion brand. All of this would come into sharper focus and way more panic by late March of 2020, when life came to a weird quasi-standstill. Could fashion remain fast when everything else was at a temporary stop? If you're enjoying this episode, then this is a great time to remind you that my work here at Close Horse is made possible by the support of listeners like you, just like NPR, and these great small businesses. Please go give them your support. Blank Cass or Blanket Coats by Cass, is focused on restoring, renewing, and reviving the history held within vintage and heirloom textiles. By embodying the love, craft, and energy that is original to each vintage textile as I transfer it into a new garment, I hope we can reteach ourselves to care for and mend what we have and make it last. Blankcast lives on Instagram at blank underscore Cass, and a website will be launched soon at blankcasts.com. Find us on Instagram at shop underscore velvet underground or online at www.shopvelvetunderground.com. St. Evans is a New York City-based vintage shop that is dedicated to bringing you those special pieces you'll reach for again and again. More than just a store, St. Evans is dedicated to sharing the stories and history behind the garments. 10% of all sales are donated to a different charitable organization each month. New Vintage is released every Thursday at Wearsaintevens.com with previews of new pieces and more brought to you on Instagram at wear_underscore. ST.Evens. That's where St. Evens. Country Feedback is a mom and pop record shop in Tarboro, North Carolina. They specialize in used rock, country, and soul and offer affordable vintage clothing and housewares. Do you have used records you want to sell? Country Feedback wants to buy them. Find us on Instagram at Country Feedback Vintage and Vinyl, or head down east and visit our brick and mortar. All are welcome at this inclusive and family friendly record shop in the country. Republica Unicornia Yarns, handmade yarn and notions for the color obsessed, made with love and some swearing in fabulous Atlanta, Georgia, by head yarn wench Kathleen. Get ready for rainbows with a side of giving a damn. Republica Unicornia is all about making your own magic using small batch, responsibly sourced, hand-dyed yarns, and thoughtfully made notions. Slow fashion all the way down and discover the joy of creating your very own beautiful hand-knit, crocheted, or woven pieces. Find us on Instagram at republica underscore Unicornia underscore yarns and at www.republicaunicornia.com. Picnicwear, a slow fashion brand ethically made by hand from vintage and deadstock materials, most notably vintage towels. Founder Danny has worked in the industry as a fashion designer for over 10 years, but started Picnicwear in response to her dissatisfaction with the industry's shortcomings. Picnicwear recently moved to rural North Carolina where all their sewing and accessories are now designed and cut, but the majority of their sewing is done by skilled garment workers in New York City. they customers take comfort in knowing that all their sewists are paid well above New York City minimum wage. Picnic wear offers minimal waste and maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Cute Little Ruin is an online shop dedicated to providing quality vintage and secondhand clothing, vinyl, and home items in a wide range of styles and price points. If it's ethical and legal, we try to find a home for it. Vintage style with progressive values. Find us on Instagram at cute little ruin. Is there a little bit of Italy in your soul? Are you an enthusiast of pre love decor and accessories? Bring vintage Italian style and history into your space with the pewter thimble. We source useful and beautiful things and mend them where needed. We also find gorgeous illustrations and make them print-worthy. Tarot cards, tea towels, and hand-picked treasures available to you from the comfort of your own home. Responsibly sourced from across Rome, lovingly renewed by fairly paid artists and artisans, with something for every budget, Discover more at theputerthimble.com. Deco Denim is a startup based out of San Francisco and it sells clothing and accessories that are sustainable, gender fluid, size inclusive, and high quality, made to last for years to come. Deco Denim is trying to change the way you think about buying clothes. Founder Sarah Mattis wants to empower people to ask important questions like Where was this made? Was this garment made ethically? Is this fabric made of plastic? Can this garment be upcycled? And if not, can it be recycled? Sign up at decodenim.com to receive $20 off your first purchase. They promise not to spam you and send out no more than three emails a month, with two of them surrounding education or a personal note from the founder. Again, that's decodenim.com. If you read as many think pieces about the pandemic's impact on fashion at the height of the pandemic as I did, well, I'm sorry that you did. <laughs> because most of them ended up being complete and nonsense in hindsight. We were told that one, fashion was over and we were only wearing sweatpants from now on and forever. Two, no one would ever prioritize style over function ever again. <laughs> Sorry, these are so ridiculous, but we really were all talking about this. Three, fashion would finally slow down and the spell of fast fashion was officially broken. Yeah. Hmm. And lastly, customers would buy less because fashion was over. Yeah. How long was fashion over? Was it like a couple months? I don't know. Was it even a couple months? You know what? Actually, we're going to find out today that it never really was. I never bought that nonsense for a minute. I definitely panicked because I hate sweatpants. Is this what I was going to wear the rest of my life? I didn't even have a pair. I was going to have to buy a pair. It all sounded very stressful. I don't like to wear pants. But ultimately, whenever I would start to think about this, I just knew that we would get tired of our pandemic clothes as soon as we felt safe leaving the house again. And while many of us still don't feel safe, the world has forced most of us to pretend that everything is okay. The early days of the pandemic, it's so weird. They feel both near and real, and it's like they're still happening. And they also feel really far away. In March and April of the pandemic, I was wearing gloves and a mask to grocery shop. I took off my clothes inside the front door as soon as I returned, and I immediately threw them in a plastic bag to wash ASAP. I didn't want my family to die a horrible death alone in the hospital, and my clothes could be the vessel that brought that fate into our house and got it all started, right? I can see how we all thought that fashion would be over because clothing, clothing could kill us. By April, I had been furloughed from my job and I would never return. The last thing I'd done before being furloughed was cancel every single order we had placed, even if the product was already made and on the way to the warehouse and it Was terrible. I still think about it. And it makes me break down because sales reps cried and they lost their jobs like immediately the same week. Vendors begged me to reconsider because this would mean bankruptcy for them. And you know what? Some of them did go bankrupt almost immediately. Brands went out of business or very nearly. And the whole thing struck me as fundamentally immoral because my employer was just one small brand under a larger fast fashion parent company that owned several large brands. And all of those brands were canceling their orders too. The company always bragged about having 100 million dollars in the bank and how that made us better than any other retailer out there. But here we were canceling everything and ensuring that the people making those clothes would starve and lose their homes. It was disgusting. I hated doing it felt sick and sad the entire time. But I also knew that I had no say in the matter. I mean, I literally sat down with my team, sat down virtually on Zoom and said, listen, we have to do this. It sucks. If someone's giving you a really hard time, send them to me and I'll talk to them. And I had the same conversations with all of those people. I said, I don't want to do this. I think it's wrong. I have no choice. And they understood, but that didn't make it any sadder or more right. Right? Every other retailer out there did the same thing. They didn't want to be stuck with even more inventory that they could not sell. And everyone was convinced that fashion was over, that people would never buy new outfits again. And then Sheehan does $10 billion in sales, that's billion with a B, in 2020, this year that fashion was over. It becomes that year the largest online retailer of clothing in the world by October, while every other brand out there is on the verge of failure. How was Shein just killing it when we were supposed to be wearing sweatpants for the rest of our lives? Well, for one, every other retailer hit the panic button and stopped offering new stuff, Eventually, they shifted into offering loungewear, which I'm sure drove some sales, but it was kind of lackluster. And not offering new stuff was a mistake because, remember, the fast fashion model means getting people to shop from you as often as possible. And they can't do that. They don't want to do that when you're not giving them a reason to come back. Remember, long before 2020, we're all addicted to constant newness and now there is none, Sheehan was like, hey, we're gonna launch 6,000 new styles every day. We're gonna use technology to ensure that we are offering product that aligns with every new micro trend and aesthetic that people are talking about on social media, especially this new app, TikTok. And we'll leverage those social media platforms to get people to come to us to buy new clothes to cheer themselves up. Because that's the thing. While many of us were sitting at home worrying about money because we'd lost our jobs, lots of other people were still working and they had nowhere to spend their money now that they couldn't travel or eat out. So, time to do some online shopping. And once again, every other retailer had nothing new to offer because they'd canceled everything. But Sheehan had thousands of new things every single day. And it was all so cheap, so plentiful, so easy. Like you can't leave the house, that's okay. Sit on the couch and assemble a Sheehan haul on your phone. Furthermore, while people might be worrying about money or see a drop in their financial security, one thing I've learned in my career is that they don't stop buying stuff. They keep on shopping just for less expensive stuff. And Shein had the perfect prices. Shein is officially Fast Fashion 3.0 because it makes the model work even faster. How? Well, let's recap what we've covered. Fast Fashion 1.0 was way faster than anything that had come before it. A product could start as a concept and be in stores or on the website within six weeks. Before everything got Fast Fashionified, we'd be looking at three to six months. Like three would have been, whoa, that's really fast for us, right? This is half of that. This allowed retailers to practically reinvent their stores every month or so. All of that product shipped overseas from the factories, often via airplane, where it was trucked from the airport to the brand warehouse. From there, it was shipped off to stores or to customers. Fast Fashion 2.0 speeds that up to about two weeks by manufacturing locally, Often under shady, exploitative conditions. We talked about that in the last episode. But the product still shipped to the warehouse in one big shipment where it was stored until it was shipped off to the customer. So the path was always, no matter how fast it was, factory, then airplane, then truck, then warehouse, then store or customer. Here's the thing about that path it's expensive. You have to build warehouses. You need staffing for the warehouse. You pay customs and duties on all of those big cargo shipments. You have to pay to have the shipments trucked to your warehouse. You've paid to ship into the country and now you pay to ship it to the stores or customers. And all the way, you're paying people to handle this product. Fast Fashion 3.0 cuts that process down to factory, airplane, customer. There is no warehouse. There is no big cargo cost. There are no customs and duties, there are very few people to pay along the way. Shein and all of its copycats slash peers ship directly from the factory to the customer. There is nothing in between. This model is already profitable by cutting out those middle steps, but there's another part of it that makes it so much more profitable, not paying customs and duties. That's thanks to the de minimis rule, which allows any package shipping into the United States with a value under $800 to be exempt from duties and customs inspection. Until 2016, that threshold was $200. Think about how many Sheehan packages are worth more than $800. Very few. I mean, that's like an epic haul. And in fact... This is per package, right? When stuff's shipping factory direct, it's coming in multiple packages. So the odds of you ever ordering something from Shein and it being over that $800 threshold, it's like impossible basically, right? So like I said, until 2016, that threshold was $200. I still don't think you would get there with Shein because it's shipping from every little factory. So they all come separately. Same thing with Timu, Cider, all of them. But raising it from $200 to $800 in 2016, that's an increase of 400%, it opened the door for Shein and its peers like Timu and Cider to very profitably ship into the United States. In 2016, the de minimis rule applied to about 220 million packages making their way into the United States directly to customers. By 2021, it was 771 million, more than three times what it had been in 2016, with 60% of those packages coming directly from China. Now, shopping factory direct from China isn't new per se. Members of the Lolita fashion community have been doing it for years, finding small designers via Taobao. But ordering via Taobao wasn't easy. You often needed to jump through some hoops to place an order, and it took a long time for the product to reach you. AliExpress was another option for people, but it was really intimidating to most customers. And once again, the product took a long time to get to you. Wish started off with a bang, making factory direct shopping from China easier, but customers were often wildly disappointed by the quality and the reality of what they received. And once again, the shipping took a long time. People like some instant gratification. Others were a little bit more successful by focusing on specific style subcultures. For example, there's light in the box, which is basically an easier version of shopping Taobao with higher prices. And other people were making a fortune essentially building websites for customers to shop that connected to dropshippers on AliExpress. So you might think you were buying from a person here in the U.S., but really, you were buying from a factory that sold on AliExpress. Honestly, a lot of people who have been on 90 Day Fiance make a living doing that even now <laughs> with, like, makeup and clothes. It's ridiculous. When and first started, it was kind of a joke. Uh, like, I don't know, meme fodder. You know, like what I thought I ordered versus what I really got from Shein. Maybe what you thought you ordered was a panther, what you really got was a calico cat. But Shein got it together by more tightly managing its factory base, using technology to analyze demand and iterate upon best sellers, and they made ordering and shipping super easy. By mid-2021, Every investor out there wanted to know what is the next Shein and how can I get on this train? Matthew Brennan is a China-based tech expert who I've quoted here before, who has spent a lot of time researching and writing about Shein, and he told Business of Fashion in 2021, everyone in China has been looking at Shein and trying to dig out things to copy. All of the pieces of the puzzle to the business have already been out there, but no one has executed them as well as Shein. And then this is when we see more and more brands popping up, practically an infinite list at this point offering factory direct product. And these factories are kind of selling everywhere now directly to customers. They do it on Amazon, on Timu, Etsy, Cider, AliExpress, Shein, and so much more. It's sort of a renaissance of connecting customers with Chinese factories. Once again, all of this is made possible by technology and the de minimis rule. And this model, which doesn't have to pay for warehouses, customs, or really much of anything, ensures that Shein and its competitors can offer prices that literally no one else can compete with. This still might seem like a good story, like Shein is making fashion more affordable for more people. What a hero. But you already know it's way more complicated than that, right? I mean, for one, the quality isn't that great. <laughs> and also, people don't need to be buying that many new clothes. But there's more. For one, Sheehan and all of the fast fashion brands have practically become shorthand for stealing from artists, designers, and small brands. And Sheehan and all these other brands were getting away with it because it's hard to fight a bigger retailer. When you're a small business. Furthermore, customers were and are buying these copies without hesitation. There are groups on Facebook just for sharing dupes of stuff from smaller brands and designers. And all of these dupes come from Shein, Cider, AliExpress, Timu, that kind of thing. In mid-July of this year, three independent designers and artists, Krista Perry, Larissa Martinez, and Jay Barron, filed a case in California federal court against Shein and its related entities. I'm so proud of them for making this move because it has been a long time coming. Because I don't know about you, but it feels like just about every brand, artist, designer that I admire has been knocked off by Shein over the last few years. The case involves copyright and trademark infringement by Sheehan, specifically citing, quote, their practice of producing, distributing, and selling exact copies of their creative works, which they allege is, quote, part and parcel of Sheehan's design process and organizational DNA. A case of this nature has been a long time coming because Sheehan is infamous for copying artists and designers and never ever facing repercussions for it. Social media is filled with stories of artists and designers trying to hold Shein accountable without success. The case claims that Shein uses a powerful algorithm to capture fashion trends early in the cycle, then uses its production and fulfillment infrastructure to make billions of dollars churning out new product and stealing designs and art every day. And I 100% believe this, based on what I see them selling and how fast it happens. Sheehan generally gets away with this unethical behavior for several reasons. For one, it usually only orders about 200 units of a new item. In contrast, a standard fast fashion retailer would order 1,000 to 10,000 or more units in an initial order. In fact, Sheehan's ability to produce so few units speaks to its unique factory situation. It's really, in my experience, extremely difficult to make less than 300 units of anything via a factory in China. And even 300 units is pretty iffy. Even when you're a large retailer, you're definitely gonna be paying a lot more for that. Usually prices go up as the size of an order goes down, making small batches too expensive for your standard fast fashion customer's budget. So this ability to produce in very small batches and keep pricing low gives Sheehan and these other retailers a major advantage. Why does Sheehan order so little? Well, it allows them to test the customer interest in it, but it also allows them to test the legal waters. If an artist, designer, brand discovers that the design has been stolen, Sheehan can settle cheaply and fast with very little financial loss. Remember, I said earlier that one of the causes of so much clothing being made every year that is never sold is being caught, stealing ideas, right? And then not being able to sell this stuff and having to destroy it. Shein doesn't have to get quite so deep into it. Furthermore, this idea of these small quantities, allows Sheehan to claim it was just like a blip in the system, like some sort of oversight, a bad factory partner, that kind of thing. And it allows them to skirt accountability for this. You know, and I wanna talk about the small quantities thing for a moment while we're here, because Sheehan and Cider cite this on their websites as a reason that they are more sustainable than other brands. We gotta unpack this a little bit, okay? Shein launches 6,000 styles every day. Don't worry, I did the math for you. That is 2.9 million styles each year. Even if Shein only made 100 units of each of those styles, that's 219 million garments. If they make 500 units suddenly we are at more than a billion. And that's the thing about Shein is they might only make one or 200 on the first drop, but if it sells, they're gonna make 500 more. Maybe they'll make a thousand more. They're gonna keep making more until demand wanes. And so, yeah, we're definitely talking about billions of garments being made by Shein each year. Even if the quantities per style are smaller than what we see with large retailers here in the U.S., It's still a lot of stuff with a major impact. It uses a lot of resources. And we know that many of these garments will be barely worn. I was thrifting this weekend and I saw so many Shein clothes with the tags still on them. So these claims of sustainability are bullshit, but I see how it works better for them from an inventory liability perspective and how it helps them hide from legal issues. As I mentioned earlier, designers and artists are generally unable to do very much about Sheehan's intellectual property theft. Like if the designer can afford a lawyer, and that is a huge if, lawyers are so expensive, they might be able to negotiate a settlement. But more often than not, nothing really happens other than Shein pulling the item off the website. Furthermore, if there is no pushback from the creator of the design and customers like the product, Sheehan will order many more units. When customers buy copies and knockoffs, they are actually signaling Shein or any of these other brands to continue copying. Often when an idea or a design or art enters the knockoff cycle via Shein or Timu, any of these retailers, it's just the first stop on a long, uncontrollable chain of copies that move progressively through less reputable brands, ultimately living on Amazon or AliExpress for years. And this... This is bad, okay, this is not a victimless crime. This robs the original creator of their ownership and often decreases the value of the original work. And this can end the business completely or force them to find a different direction. Once again, stealing designs and art is not a victimless crime. It actually stifles creativity and innovation while stomping out small business. And sometimes I wanna barge into these Facebook groups for dupes, just barge in there like the Kool-Aid man and just be like, hey guys, this is not a victimless crime. Knock it off. Um, But I don't know if I have the energy for it. But if any of you wanna do it, you are my hero and tell me how it goes. So this lawsuit against Sheehan could be a game changer. Um, For one, this is the first time anyone is holding them accountable in a major way. But this lawsuit is different than other cases have been regarding fast fashion brands and copyright infringement. And that's because this lawsuit is specifically using RICO laws as its basis, The RICO Act, racketeer-influenced and corrupt organizations, was first used in the 1970s to take on the Hell's Angels. It has been used since then to dismantle organized crime. It was also used in the Enron and Bernie Madoff cases, and it's being used right now in Georgia for Trump and his cronies, you know, their attempts to overturn the election results in Georgia. The RICO Act allows authorities to take legal action against collectives and conglomerates rather than an individual or a single company. And while using these laws that are designed to take down organized crime might seem a little dramatic, this is essential in holding Shein accountable because while it seems like a big monolithic company to customers, it's actually a collective of shell companies holding groups, and random seeming conglomerates based all around the world in what the case calls a Byzantine shell game of a corporate structure. And this confusing structure is not unintentional because it allows Sheehan to duck a lot of responsibilities. For one, legal repercussions of intellectual property theft and consumer injury Tracking down a defendant for any lawsuit against Shein is nearly impossible. And so often cases cannot move forward. If you find lead in your Shein clothing, oh well, there's no one to hold responsible. Same thing if your clothes burst into flames or if you discover they have stolen your art or design. Next, we're going to talk about taxes and duties an awful lot today, a lot more than I thought, ever thought I would be, um, you know back at my first buying job we had a merchant development program and one of the sessions you had to meet with this woman who works in the area of customs um which are an important part of almost every order you place unless it's made domestically and she showed up with this book that was like the size of like six volumes of encyclopedia in one book and this is what she would use to look up the duties on an order I think it's now all digital, but I think about that book every time I talk about customs and duties and my brain kind of shuts down. I did really do a lot of work to overcome that (laughs) for this episode. Just keep picturing that enormous book that she had a special case for it. That's how big it was. And she brought it in on a cart. I'm not joking. This is a real story. Anyway, taxes and duties. No clear central hub in one specific country allows Sheehan to avoid a lot of taxes and customs fees. And yes, that saves them a lot of money. Lastly, this Byzantine shell game of a corporate structure allows Sheehan to skirt issues of labor safety and wage theft. If it's unclear who is responsible for a factory or a product, Government agencies can't hold anyone accountable or force change from them. (sighs) Okay, we won't talk about customs for at least three minutes now, but we'll be back to it. Okay, so next, Shein and these fast fashion brands don't really know much about their supply chain. Do you remember that disastrous Shein influencer trip this summer? Shein brought some influencers out to China, took them to factories where their products were supposedly made, and everyone had a really great experience. The workers were loving life, the factories were clean and full of beautiful light, and people took lots of selfies, and it was a great time. The thing is, this was a prearranged trip. So yeah, these factories, if they were even the real factories had time to make everything look clean and safe looking. And this is not unusual. In fact, if you wanna have a good factory audit, you don't tell them you're coming. And this is actually, believe it or not, one of the major flaws in the current factory audit system as a whole, because often the people doing the factory audits are actually like locals to the area and they will take bribes to tell the factories when the audit is happening uh, years ago at one of my jobs, my boss went to China to visit a few factories, and once she went to uh there were some issues actually, it looked clean, and people seemed like they were having a good time, but all the aisles were blocked, and so that's like a fa- like a fire hazard that 's how people get trapped and can't escape and she said something about it to the manager of the factory. And he was sort of like, Haha, well, I'm glad you didn't see it before you came. Uh, we tried to make it look as good as possible for you. Um, and this isn't what it's normally like. And then it was really awkward. Like he ran away. And you know what happens is we stopped working with that factory. But that is the nature of this stuff, right? So Shein taking influencers on a pre-arranged factory tour is such nonsense to me. And I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed that anyone thought that this would work as a PR campaign. Furthermore, a 2022 undercover investigation from Channel 4 and The i newspaper in the UK had found some pretty horrible stuff in factories making clothing for Sheehan. We talked about this last year. There were workers working 18 hours a day, getting only one day off per month. Employees were so overworked that they washed their hair at work on their lunch break to save time because they had very little time between shifts. I mean, they had to try to sleep and eat, right? Workers would be fined two-thirds of their total wages for the month for one small mistake. My friends, that is how you keep prices low, by taking people's wages away. Um, and the workers sewing these garments made four cents per item before they were fined for any mistakes, with a goal of about 500 garments per day. So if you go in and you meet your goal of 500 garments, which you have no choice, because if you don't, you lose your job. You go in there, you work 18 hours, you make 500 garments, you just got paid $20 to work an 18-hour shift. Yes, some of you might be saying, oh, but things are different over there. The cost of living is different over there. I want to be clear, no matter where in the world you live, these are poverty wages, okay? This is not okay. Shein has such little visibility into its supply chain, as do all of these other fast fashion 3.0 platforms and brands. They will claim that there is no forced labor within their supply chain. But a report issued in June by the U.S. House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party. Whew, that's a mouthful. That report indicates that there is probably a lot of forced labor happening in the factories making products for Shein, for Timu, for all all of the fast fashion 3.0 brands. I'm primarily referring to the forced labor of the Uyghur Muslims, but political dissidents and other religious groups like Tibetan Buddhists have also been forced into work camps. The de minimis rule, oh, we're getting back to customs, I'm sorry. The de minimis rule actually makes it easier for fast fashion 3.0 to ship product made with forced labor into the United States. The sheer volume of packages ensures that customs agents will never be able to inspect them all, or even a few of them. And in general, de minimis packages kind of fly through the system without any stop to check them. The UFLPA is the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, and it was passed in 2021 finally, to prevent products manufactured using the forced labor of Uyghur Muslims into the United States. Have I ever mentioned how much Nike fought that? (laughs) They really fought it hard. There is concern that Sheehan, Timu, and their peers are using the de minimis loophole to skirt compliance with the UFLPA. In other words, they are not even working to remove forced labor from their supply chain because they're not going to get caught. There is a conversation that is picking up a lot of momentum about rolling back the de minimis threshold. And I recommend that you call your senator or congressional representative and tell them that you want this to happen. You are concerned about products made with forced labor making their way into the United States under the de minimis rule. This If this passed, if this was rolled back, this could force a significant shift in what Shein and its peers are shipping, especially because they would be subject to duties and customs, including, hopefully, inspection for forced labor. Let's think about the journey of a garment made by a fast fashion 1.0 brand. First, it passes through customs where any major safety issues will be spotted. Next, it arrives at the warehouse where the staff unpacks it and recognizes any large quality issues. Next, it arrives in the stores where more people unpack it and can spot any other concerns, maybe a lot more concerns. And by the time it gets into a customer's hands, most issues have been caught. In Fast Fashion 3.0, no one sees it between the factory and the customer, No one catches the quality and safety issues. So yeah, Fast Fashion 3.0 isn't great. But its effects are even bigger than the mere repercussions of human exploitation and egregious waste. For one, retailers here in the U.S. can't compete with those prices. After all, they have the expenses of customs, duties, taxes, warehouses, and staff, So the Shein era is definitely going to drive a lot of brands out of business. Am I crying over the potential loss of, say, Forever 21, who, by the way, is now partnering with Shein? Great. No, but as these brands go out of business, people will lose their jobs. Lots of people will lose their jobs. It's not just the people working in the stores. It's the people working in the warehouses and the offices as well. I want to assure you, lest you thought otherwise, that brands won't go down without a fight. And where they will start the fight is by lowering their prices. And they will get there by cutting their costs, just like they did in the first iteration of Fast Fashion 1.0. They will lay people off. Maybe they will get rid of more expensive employees so they can hire new ones for less money. They will have one person doing the job of many, They will push factories for even lower pricing, which puts garment workers in an even more terrible position. And in general, they will create even lower quality goods. In fact, the ripple effects of fast fashion 3.0 are bad for everyone Everywhere. It means more low quality clothes entering the landfill even faster. It means all of us spending more money more often to replace our clothing because they are low quality, because it is more low quality than ever. Think about how much we had to lower our expectations for clothing in the last decade. Imagine it even worse because retailers can't offer Shein pricing with the current quality while still having warehouses and stores. They will actually probably have to lower the quality below the quality of Sheehan to make the math math. And trust me, they will try. We're also gonna see more and more synthetic fabrics because they are cheaper and they will be shedding microplastics everywhere. What else? Wages for warehouse workers, retail staff, and even corporate staff we'll be suppressed even more. So it becomes even harder to make a living with these jobs. I was laying in bed the other night. I was thinking about this series and the stories that I've shared. And I was thinking about that one job, well, multiple jobs, where I was working full-time, working really long hours, and I could barely afford food, heat, or even the bus. No one who's working full-time should ever have to worry about food, heat, or taking the bus. That's going to get worse as Fast Fashion 3.0 suppresses wages. And here's the thing. When wages in one industry are suppressed, it carries over into every other industry. If you don't think what Amazon workers are paid affects what you're paid, you're wrong. And these big companies set the standard for pay and benefits. Basically, Fast Fashion 3.0 will affect every single worker, all of us, no matter what we do. I was gonna end this by trying to imagine what Fast Fashion 4.0 is, and I just can't do it. It's too scary because I never saw this series of events coming when I began my career. So instead, let's wrap this up by talking about what we can do to slow fast fashion 3.0 and maybe, just maybe, prevent 4.0 from ever emerging. If you've been listening to Clothes Horse for a long time, you probably have this list memorized, but let's go through it anyway. Number one, change your habits. We shop for a lot of different reasons, and most of them have nothing to do with actual need. It's important to get to know yourself and know why, how you shop because retail therapy is not therapy. Two, buy less and make it last longer. This includes learning to mend or paying others to mend your clothes and doing laundry carefully, making thoughtful decisions about what you decide to buy, making commitments to things you're gonna wear for a long time. Three, be a proud outfit repeater. Dismantle the expectation that you have to wear a new outfit for every event and Instagram photo. You definitely don't need a new wardrobe for your vacation, for example. (laughs) Next, adopt a secondhand first approach, meaning opting for secondhand as often as possible. It won't be every time, but most of the time is still a really big help. Number five, this is a big one, Share your knowledge with others because people don't know this stuff. Did you know this stuff before you started listening? I only knew half of this stuff before I started making this show. There's a lot to learn and know. And if we tell other people what we've learned, we're going to make an impact on what they do in the future. I promise you. And lastly, lead by example. Show others what the slow fashion way of life is on social media and IRL. People think that not buying a ton of stuff means you're living like a life of deprivation and despair, and you're practically nude or unstylish, or you feel and look terrible. And we all know that none of that is true. So let's show that to other people. I've said it many, many times before, and I'll say it again. One person can't make a difference alone, but when all of us are talking about fast fashion and changing our habits and pushing for laws around this stuff, We will make a serious change. So let's get to work. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Written, researched, edited, overshared, and all the other things by me, Amanda Lee McCarty. If you liked what you're hearing, please leave a rating, maybe even a review on Apple Podcasts. I do love a good review. It always makes my day, maybe even my week. But most importantly, tell your friends, we've got to get this message out there. This is step one to massive social, economic, and environmental change. Wow, I feel really important all of a sudden. (laughs) If you'd like to support my work financially, which I would love, there are many options. You can learn more at patreon.com slash closedhorsepodcast or you can check out my profile on Instagram where I have a link tree in my profile that shows you other options. And of course, one easy way is to sign up for the Apple Premium subscription. It's 2 dollars a month. You get access to all of our archives. And most importantly, you just get to say, wow, I'm part of this. And you know what? I really appreciate it. Thanks, as always, to my other half, Dustin Travis White, for our music and audio support and for going to Costco today to get treats. We were really treat-deprived feeling. (laughs) All right. I'll see you all next week. Bye.